tonight we want to focus on be strong in the Lord because the crown jewel of the book of Ephesians. And I would say the most important chapter, and that's a big thing to say because so far in the first five chapters, we have read about very foundational and crucial matters. So to say that chapter six is by far the most important is quite something, right? So we know that chapter six is primarily about spiritual warfare. So we need to get to it as quickly as possible. But we have the first nine verses um, as a carryover from last week that we'd like to study. So Stephanie, can you help us read um, Ephesians chapter six from verse one to verse nine? Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not unto, and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Yes, thank you very much. Um, we don't really have too much time to press the details of these verses, but it's also not a problem because they're quite self-explanatory, right? Very popular scriptures. So we see that the, the issue of harmony in the family and order in the family is so necessary to the full manifestation of the character of Christ in a believer that Paul has instructions even for children. Right? So it means he considers children to be Christians, to be part of the family of God, no matter their age. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that he may be well with you and you may live long on the face of the earth. Um, if, I had, if we had time, I would have asked you, why does he say that you need to honor your father and your mother? And I'm sure there would be many interesting answers. But it's very clear that God um, is, is a rewarder, right? God cares about orderliness. God cares about honor. And God wants you to always remember when you were helpless, right? Without, without support. I don't know if you've seen an infant with, <laughs> with, with their mother and now with their parents. The infant is totally helpless, totally dependent on their mother and their father. And that is what you wear so that even though you have grown up now and you are confident and intelligent and you are charting your own course, God does not want you by any means to forget those days. And this is not even to talk about the other side of it as well, which is that we're reading all of this in the context of the admonition to walk wisely. And um, typically, no matter how old you are, your parents are usually double your age or more. And what that means is that there is treasures of wisdom that is in their lives that God will not have you despise, right? So that even when they are clearly wrong, because it's important to draw a balance here, yeah? there are many times your parents will be wrong, 
if they do not understand your destiny, right? If they do not understand the unique path that God is, is calling you to follow. That's why Paul didn't just say, obey your parents in the Lord. So he said, obey your parents and do so in the Lord. You are under no obligation to obey, obey parents outside of the Lord, right? So if you receive instructions that are not in keeping with the character of God, you're under no obligation to obey. But beyond obedience, he says, beyond obedience, he says, honor your father and your mother. It's beyond obedience. It's, it's an honor. It's an attitude. It's a way of addressing them. It's a way of listening to them. It's a way of treating them, right? Um, and it says that when God looks at your life, this is where his judgment begins in your life, by your attitude towards the people who cared for you when you were helpless, the people who took the risk to bring you um, into this world despite the personal cost to them. And the people who, whom he has placed in your immediate context who know more than you do. Right? And he says that he may be well with you, that you may live long upon the earth. <laughs> I don't know if anybody in history has done the research, but I can assure you that if you do the research, you'll find that um, nobody who has dishonored their parents has had it well with them all through history. My interest, however, is verse 4, where he says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So it's interesting here, right, that Paul wants the fathers to take responsibility for training the child and bringing them up in the way of the Lord, right, encouraging them. That's what admonition is, encouraging them in the Lord. You know, it doesn't leave this responsibility to mothers. This is part of the responsibilities of headship. But he says that <laughs> while you're carrying out this assignment, do not provoke your children. How is this even possible, right? Maybe we should open the floor here to hear comments. Since all of us have had fathers at one point or the other, or some of us will be fathers, and some, we've lived with fathers, either distantly or closely. What's Paul saying here? How is this possible to bring up, to train a child, right? in such a way as not to provoke the child. What, what do you see in the scripture? Can I try? I don't, I'm just going to use yes. an example. Mm -hmm. I went for a particular program and it was mostly about talking about um, women who had been abused by, you know, in some way or the other. And most of these ladies had issues with their dad with their fathers you mm. know ones like oh he abused me in this way and because of that and now this way you know uh, there was another girl that talked about how she's not able to forgive her dad because he told her she's a waste of space and mm. she's grown up with that resentment in her heart such that it, in fact it was just difficult for her to see men in a different light so mm. um but now anyway, she's Christian and, you know, she's trying to bring people back into Christ and knowing fully well that fathers have done a lot of damage to some people. That's the angle she's coming from. And, you know, I just felt like when I heard their stories and a lot of them had issues with their fathers. When I heard their stories, I just remembered this verse, you know, because these people grew up with so much hatred in their heart and their lives mm. just went astray. If not that, that God has, you know, you know is repairing their lives but 
this particular verse, not provoking your children, um, can last a very long time um, in the life of the child. And it can just go from generation because abused people can abuse other people as well. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you very much for that contribution. Any other contribution to this? You see, it's interesting that God holds the father responsible for the reaction of the child, which is quite fascinating, isn't it, right? Because if you have dealt with children before, especially when they start growing up and becoming teenagers, I think one word that is not completely out of place to use to describe children is is rebels or rebellious people. It's very difficult for a child to obey, essentially. And so even though um, the child has this tendency God still holds the father responsible for the response of the child, meaning that if the father ends up provoking the child, making them leave the house um, in in bad blood, making them become wayward, making them become the things that um, that Stephanie just described, (laughs) God holds the father responsible. So this is one of the core responsibilities of headship. Right, to ensure that children are brought up in the fear of the Lord without discouraging them. That's also one of the things that provoke means. And just to share a thought on this from a book I read sometime last year, it's important when we talk about the issue of love, because what he's essentially saying is that I want you to love your children despite their flaws, despite their weakness. So he's telling you to love them, but then he's holding you responsible for their response. It means that you cannot define love correctly you you cannot say that you're loving someone until the person experiences the impact of your love. You know, it's very possible for you to say that you're loving someone. Maybe you're the kind of father that is never around, but whenever you come back, you come back with, with I don't know, Playstations and some money, and you, you write yourself good in your books that you're doing well. It's not about what you did or what you did not do. It's about the object of your love? Does the object of your love feel the impact of your love? So if you're supposed to be listening to your child and you're telling your child, you know, I'm pressing my phone, but I'm listening to you. You see, you you, you might truly be listening, but the problem is that the, the person who's supposed to receive your love does not receive it as though, that, as though you are listening. So the thing that you're saying that you're doing is, is a complete waste of time. And you see the proof that you and I can father people, can father children, can father a generation, is our ability to, to bear with their weaknesses, right? It's our ability to humble ourselves, to, to almost like Jesus did, bend down and take water and wash their feet, right? Because their own mistakes and foolishness often evokes memories of our own mistake and foolishness. And surprisingly, psychologically, it makes us hard towards them because we don't like that we're seeing parts of us, parts of the things about ourselves that we don't like in, in our children. And there's a tendency to, to snap at them, to be hard, to respond. Um, when that happens, we are behaving like children as well. And the proof of our fatherhood, our motherhood, is our ability to bear with our children, to walk them through their difficulties in all long suffering and patience and perseverance until they come out on the other side. It's a, it's a solemn responsibility, right? And in the family context, God holds the father responsible for this, okay? 
So I just wanted to make that point before we keep jumping. And Paul goes on to address bond servants. And he says, be obedient to those who are your masters, um, to the flesh in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants doing the will of God from the heart. And he goes on to say how, you know, the service is unto the Lord and not to men. And that you should know that anything that good that you do, you receive the same in the Lord. When we looked at this, a parallel scripture to this, if you remember in Colossians chapter three, when Paul also addressed servants, one of the things we said, and which we have said throughout our studies is that, um, I mean, it's pretty obvious that this, the, the writings of Paul were not meant to be activist um, called to arms you know, against slavery because Paul was just writing realistically into the culture in which he was, he was, he was born. And it was not realistic, no matter how many arms you take up, that slavery was going to end in that time. And so in a sense, he's saying that the will of God is not so much concerned with whether you are the one who's submitting or you are the one who is in headship, right? Because these roles can change. The person who is a, who is a slave to his master, when he goes home, he's the head of a house to a woman, right? So the will of God is not too concerned with the fact that you're a doctor or you are a nurse or you're an engineer, even though it's, of course, it's important for you to choose the right path and to be in the right place at the right time. The will of God is more concerned with what kind of person you are becoming in that role, because the kind of person you are becoming in that role is the hope that Christ has for his light, the light of his character, the light of his life to shine through in that place. And so Paul was saying that if you find yourself in a season where you are a slave, which you can remove slave there in our time and say where you're an employee, right? <laughs> don't go there just to make your salary. Let Don't make your aim to be to do the least possible to get the most money, <laughs> which is always the complaint of all trade unions in the world. We want to work fewer hours, we want to make more money, right? But, but he's saying that have a, have a separate vision, have a different audience, have a different appraisal because the way it works for the new covenant believer is that the life of God is what powers everything that you do so that even in the job that is committed to you, the life of God is available to you. So the eternal life of God is available to you to supply you with uncommon wisdom and strength to excel at that job, to produce value from that job. This is the story of Joseph in the house of Potiphar that Potiphar realized that everything was going well with him and he, he didn't mix it up. He was sure that this was because of Joseph in his house. You know, God wants the life of his kingdom to be on display everywhere. And we will never know what it would look like um, for a slave to display the life of Christ until one, is, until one becomes born again and does not have a way out of that situation. Paul is not saying perpetuate yourself in that situation but he's saying, have a different audience, have a different motivation. If Christ is the source of the wisdom and the energy by which you labor, then ensure that your labor is going to produce foods that are worthy of Christ. That when the people who are your masters, the people who are your contemporaries, when they look at you, they will see what Christ is like, right? And then more beautifully, he says that they will, they will receive a reward. That's what he says in verse eight. Whatever good anyone does, whether they do it as a slave or as a master or as an employee or as an employer, 
he will receive the same from the Lord. And then he turns to masters because if you are the master, it's pretty easy, right? And he says the same thing to masters. He says, keep Jesus as your focus. Remember that you're going to be accountable to him. Remember that you're going to um, render an account to him about how you dealt with the people around you. Was your life an obstacle to Christ? Or was it an enabler of the message of the kingdom? And so regardless of what place in society you find yourself, Paul has addressed family. He has addressed what you might call the work context. He wants you to work, to work wisely because there is something at stake in your life and it is the glory of God. You see, the hope that you and I have is the hope of the glory of God. I don't know if you have ever stopped to think about that hope, that a day will come when you will not need faith anymore because you're going to see him as he is. And that, that that appearance is going to do something to your own appearance. It's called the glory of God. We have such a lively hope, right? And it's important for those who have that hope to ensure that our lives do not obscure that glory the measure of it that we have in this life, that our life does not obscure it, but that our light, our life shines it brightly, regardless of the place in the family or in society where we find ourselves. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that let your light so shine, so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Okay, I'll pause it for there. Any thoughts on this? Um, do you have any questions or contributions to this part? It's clear. Okay, awesome. Everyone else agrees. Everyone else is so quiet tonight. Or we're waiting for the meat of it. Okay, so now we're going to Paul's conclusion of this letter and of this section, right? Which is the part on spiritual warfare. And I want us to take it step by step. So we're going to read from verse 10 to verse 12. Stephanie? Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of, darkness, of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay. So as Paul concludes the letter, his tone significantly shifts, right? If we take a step back and look through the letter, he has been at pains to show us that God has seated us well in the heavens, far above anything, right? And he has not just seated us in that place. He has blessed us with spiritual blessings and he has endowed us with the privilege to represent him, which is our calling, which is the good works that he has committed to us. And he says from, this, from chapter four that in view of this endowments of heaven, in view of these possibilities that you have in the spirit, I want you to walk in a different way. I want you to conduct yourself in a different way. And it's interesting that where it is all leading up to is that I want you to stand. 
or I want you to be strong in the Lord. So it's very obvious, right, that, that the Christian's life, the average Christian's life, this is not a hyper-spiritual Christian. The average Christian's life is a battleground. Right? Paul makes the assumption that you know already that warfare is around your life, or if it's not there, that it's coming. Um, and in a sense, this makes perfect sense, right? Because if, if you're saying that someone has been blessed with riches, essentially, riches of grace, riches of the glory of God, and then there is no opposition whatsoever, right? There is no thief trying to break into those riches. There is no resistance into those riches. Then it is highly questionable, right? If there's anything of value that the person has received. I don't know if you're, if you're, if you're following where I'm going with this, which is that the reason that your life, there is warfare in your life, it's not because you committed a sin, even though that can be the case, but that's not primarily the case. The reason there is warfare in your life is because your life is valuable. There is something at stake in your life. The same reason why Paul says you need to walk wisely, because there's something at stake. There's something to fight for. There's a kingdom to be received, a kingdom to express, a glory to, to lay hold of. It is so valuable that the resistance to it is, 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 is great. And the only way that you can, you can deal with that resistance is to be strong in the Lord. So you see, spiritual warfare is, a, is, is actually a sign, it's a proof of the infinite value of the life that you have. Right? So the moment Satan sees that someone, even if it's a baby, has received the seed of life, he knows that that seed has the capacity to, to thwart his plans on the face of the earth. You know, the prophecy that God gave to the serpent, to the serpent um, after Adam and Eve fell was that the seed of the woman is going to be your undoing. So even though to you it might just be a seed, but to Satan, he sees the end of his reign upon the face of the earth. So just in case you are in a family that has been under darkness, all kinds of manipulations and oppressions and subjugation, of the destinies of people and then suddenly an obscure weak and tired person in the family just makes a decision for christ that decision is a threat to the reign of satan because if that seed germinates and becomes what god intended to become the kingdom of darkness will be discomfited and sent to flight from that family so it's, it's crucial for us to understand that everyone who is born into the kingdom of god is born into into a context of warfare now, there are several reasons why you may not be aware of that warfare. And one of it is that you exist in an earthly comfort zone, right? And that comfort usually can be created by a life of compromise. Satan is not as concerned about you because even though you have the seed of life, there's no hope of that seed becoming anything threatening to his kingdom because you have mixed it, just like Ephraim. You have mixed it. You have become unequally yoked with his principles so that you have been neutralized, as it were. So he lets you rest. Right. Um, another way that you can be oblivious of warfare is if you are if you are afraid, if you are in fear. Because it's possible that due to cowardice of or just, just plain fear, you know, you decide that you are going to be quiet about your convictions that you, your own faith is private it's just you and god and there's no trace of it on the outside world 
Of course, in such a case, you have escaped suffering or you have escaped tribulation as it were. There is nothing about your life that is a threat to the enemy. But even in those cases, just because you were born into the family of God, you were born with the seed of the life of God, you are target. Your life is a, is a, it's a, it's a battleground. And Paul wants the believer to be aware of what is going on. Because the kingdom of God, the reason God saved you is not just for the sake of salvation, right? He saved you so that he could bring you into his kingdom and he could partner with you to extend his kingdom. So the kingdom of God is seeking to colonize your space, colonize your life so that just because Joshua came to Christ, many more can come to Christ. The reign of God can spread upon the face of the earth. And the kingdom of darkness is seeking the same. That just because X was born, many more people will be destroyed. Right? Many more people will be sent to hell. Um, it's important for each of us to make up our minds that the seed of the life of God that we have received must count. If Satan could not prevent you from getting into the kingdom, I, I can assure you that if you stand, he cannot prevent you from becoming all that God um, determined for you to become. And that's why Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So he's saying that, <laughs> I know that you are in the Lord and you are seated in the heavens. But because of this warfare, you don't only need to be in Christ. You need to be strong in him. And then there is a power that is available in him, a dynamis that is available in him. I want you to lay hold of that power that is in him because you are going to need it. And he then says in verse 11 that you need to put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's interesting that um, he calls what the devil does, the wiles of the enemy. The word wiles, there's old English, right? For the tricks of the enemy, the crafty arts of the enemy, if you like, of the devil. And something to look into a little bit, right? Because when you hear that there's spiritual warfare in your life, right? What do you think about is, this, is it a practical topic to you personally? Or what comes to mind? What kind of scenarios come to mind when you hear that there's warfare in the believer's life? Um, is it something violent? I would like to hear from you. What comes to mind when you hear that there's warfare? Can I say something? Mm -hmm. For me, it used to be like when I hear warfare, I think, you know, ultimate power, Yamatanga kind of thing, <laughs> like witchcraft consultations, and which, you know, it's probably the case. But recently, you know, I have now seen warfare as being something that is staged in the mind of the Christians. So. Mm -hmm. So at one thing you have discovered is that there are different dimensions to it, right? D depending on what family you come from, what geography of the world you're in, you could be engaged in a more direct witchcraft confrontation, right? Yes. But then it's not always a direct witchcraft confrontation. There's a micro confrontation that goes on in the mind of the individual. I believe that. I don't know how the connection 
the connection between that altar and you know what happens in the mind but i have experienced that mind one not necessarily i've not seen any witchcraft or any kind of incantation going on around me but mine is mostly in the negative thoughts and the enemy trying to bring all these nasty thoughts to my head saying that i can't i can't make it and you know I think that's a battle on its own and it's quite difficult sometimes but God helps me yeah I think that's an important point for us to note right that when we're talking spiritual warfare we don't necessarily need mean bloodshed even though sometimes Satan comes with viciousness to kill right but it's not everybody he comes against like that in fact he doesn't come against most people like that um but he does come like that. It's very important to notice that part of the mission of Satan sometimes is to kill. And it's very important that you identify when he has come as a thief to kill, to steal, and to destroy, and you address it, the situation in that manner. But the one that you face every day is much more subtle and much more um, easy to go unnoticed. And that's actually what Paul is pointing your attention to, right? Um, he says that for you to withstand this kind of warfare, you need to put on the whole arm of God. It's interesting that he's asking you to put on the whole arm of God, not so that you can fight, but so that you can stand. What does that say to you about this armor of God? I want you to put on a parachute not so that you can you can um, fly, but so that you can stand. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand. What does that mean to you? Standing is fighting or? <laughs> okay. That's a good attempt. Okay, thanks, can you hear me? Okay, yes, we can hear yes. you. Okay. Um, for me, you know, the Bible says that we should stand and see the salvation of God. The battle is God to see our part is to stand. Sorry, stand. sorry. Your voice is fading out. Not sure why. Okay, can you hear me? Is it better now? Slightly. Okay. I'll type it. Okay. But I think that you are actually getting us very close to the answer, right? And to put it very plainly, there's something in the chat, to stand is to remain in Christ from Nancy, okay? To put it very plainly, it means that the best way to, to face the enemy is to allow God to be the one to face him. Meaning that your greatest weapon against the enemy is your alignment with God. Because after you have put on the whole armor, the thing that you have to do is to stand. It means that if you're aligned with God, then you can invite his intervention continuously in your life. The first, foremost, most important principle of spiritual warfare, friends, is not fasting and prayer, even though that is part of what it takes to achieve alignment. But it's important for you to see the protocol, the procedure, the first primary most important weapon of spiritual warfare is your alignment with God. If you pray for 12 hours and you are out of alignment, 
with God, the 12 hours will not count. The 12 hours will achieve many things, but you will still be exposed to Satan. So Paul says, I want you to put on the whole, we're going to see what this whole armor is. I want you to put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand. You know, when we started this study of Ephesians, we said that the Old Testament parallel of the book of Ephesians is the book of Joshua, right? Because Ephesians begins by telling us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in a sense, there is this location called heavenly places and there are blessings. And we just have to lay hold of those blessings the same way that there was a promised land right in the book of Joshua and that Joshua was supposed to lead Israel into that promised land. The problem is that there was the Jordan to cross and after the Jordan, there was Jericho. And after Jericho, there was the Anakims. There were the giants in the land. So <laughs> there is the promise of blessing, but there's also opposition to be overcome so that the people of God can learn the principle of alignment with God. So that even if Joshua and his army were able to take Jericho, right, and, and destroy the giants and take the city, they were completely defeated at, the, at a very small village called Ai. And if you read the story, you'll discover that it, it came down to one thing, which is that they didn't inquire from God. They said, oh, we defeated Jericho. Let's go and defeat Ai. And they didn't know that Achan, one of them, had touched their cursed thing. Because if they had inquired of the Lord, <laughs> the Lord would have told them that you can't fight like this. Something is in your midst. But they assumed to go into war. And even though on paper, they should have defeated AI. They came back. They, um, they came back beaten and defeated and lost hundreds of their men, of their men in that battle, because God was trying to show them that the land I'm about to give you, the only way to take it is through alignment. And even till today, if you look at the land, the land is surrounded on every side by enemies, right? Like it has always been like that. Actually, they're surrounded in the north by Assyria very hostile nations, surrounded in the east by Moab, um, surrounded in the west by, I think, the Philistines. Everywhere Israel has turned throughout its history, it has been surrounded by enemies. And the message from above was clear that if you are going to remain as a nation, the secret is going to be your alignment. Your, your alignment in the midst of enemies is all that you have. Is all that you have. I mean, look at what... Um, I don't know if I can find the verse now in just to digress a little bit. What David said in Psalm 119, just to strike home this point. Um, Psalm 119, verse, verse 98. It says, you through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever with me. <laughs> So the person who realizes that they are in warfare begins to cherish the commandments of God because they become your wisdom through darkness. They become your guiding light. doesn't matter if everything around you, around you turns upside down. If all you have is your alignment, then you'll be fine. If we all know Psalm 3, from where, from where we get the popular song, For thou, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. You know, David wrote that Psalm when he was escaping from his son, Absalom. 
and that psalm was written in one of the most painful experiences for David because it's bad enough that your son is chasing you. You're hiding in a cave from your own son. And if you, if you consider the cultural context where that kind of thing is happening, it's, it's the height of embarrassment. But the way the psalm begins also tells us that the people were finally turning against David because they were logically saying, if David is in alignment with God, this would never have happened to him. Right, And so it could be that God is finally paying him back. I mean, look at what he says here. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many they are who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. The only reason they will say this about the king is because they say, no, he has lost his alignment with God. And so he knew that this was not about Absalom. Of course, he knew why he was going through this, through this season of intense warfare. And so in the days of his, of, of his dwelling in the cave, he found his alignment with the Lord. Right? Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Friends, it's important that we pray and fast. It's important that we study the word. But our primary warfare against Satan our primary weapon against the enemy. It's our alignment with God. Right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, I don't have too much interest in breaking down each of these forces because it's not important, right? What is important is to see that, <laughs> firstly, Paul is saying that just in case you're facing resistance, it's very important to take your eyes off of the flesh because Satan is very tricky, right? He can position some, someone, something in front of you to make you think that that's your biggest headache. Meanwhile, that is very far from the truth. But also it's pretty clear at this point that the reason why your alignment with God is so important is that the things that you are wrestling with, you cannot see them. How is it possible to fight an enemy that you cannot see? Right? How is it possible to fight an enemy that you cannot see? It, 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 it sentences you to a life of dependence. And this is what alignment means. Alignment means a life of continuous inquiry from God. Right? And a life of practical dependence on him. You know, and we're going to see a bit more of that later. But it's also clear that Paul has established earlier that the throne of Christ and where he has seated us is far above principalities and powers. So it means that as long as you operate in the spirit and from the spirit, you can, ex you can exercise the victory that God has given you. So you are not fighting for victory because the victory has been won, but you are fighting from victory. That's why most of your warfare is just for you to ascend. I don't know if you have tried to pray before and there's so much warfare just for you to ascend and feel the presence of God. The devil knows that once you go, you go past that place into ascension, you are speaking, hearing, living, operating from the place of victory. Right? So those are the three things that it's important to note about these things, right? that they are invisible. And so their invisibility calls for alignment. If God says, don't marry this person, 
and everything else looks like you should marry this person. He knows better than you. He's seen things that you cannot see. Right? If God says, quit your job and all your statistics and accountancy shows you that this is the wrong time to quit your job, God knows better. If God says, take your money out of the stock market and the price is rising, the price of Bitcoin, you bought the dip <laughs> and now the dip has become the mountain and it's rising, but God says, take your money out. So he knows better than you. Praise God. Any thoughts on this before we move on to examine what the armor of God is? You know when okay. David said, um, mm -hmm. uh, when I think First Samuel 30 or something, said, um, and David strengthened himself in the Lord. Is that, mm -hmm. is that the kind of um, thing that Paul is talking about here? That's what it means to operate from ascension because there's no strength on earth. If you, if you stay on the earth, you're going to be discouraged, right? If you read the news and your thinking is shaped by the news, you, you will become discouraged. So you need, to, you need to mount up, you need to climb. You need to climb and however, whatever it takes for you to do it, if it takes for you to come to fellowship so you can just come into an atmosphere where people are praying and worshiping, if it takes for you to fast and pray, if it takes for you to, to just take a day off and spend hours in the word of God, whatever it takes for you to leave this earth and begin to see the present and see the future from God's perspective, that's where your strength is. So that's what Paul is referring to when he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Does that help, Steph? Yes, it does. Thank you. Okay, so let's look at the armor, verse 13 to 17. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith which with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god 18 yes no 17 thank you okay so paul says therefore in view of your invisible enemies <laughs> I want you to take up the whole armor of God. As we study this, you're going to see that if you replace this and say, I want you to take up God or to wear God, that's what you, you are basically saying the same thing. He's telling you that you need to be saturated with God himself. What you need is not a Bible verse. What you need is not to put the Bible <laughs> under your pillow like some people used to do in the past and then sleep and then have a false sense of safety that the Bible will protect you. What you need is not to pour oil all around your house, except if the Holy Spirit leads you to do that. What you need is God himself. And you need God to be able to stand in the evil day. Now, Paul told us in chapter 5 that we need to redeem the time because the days are evil. But here he speaks of the evil day. He speaks of it with a definite article. 
he speaks of it in certain terms. He's saying that in each of our lives, an evil day will come. Now, how would I say this to make it easy for us to understand? Um, a day will come when Satan would have put all his minions and all his strategies or strategies, like someone has said. A day will come when Satan will, will concoct all of it together. And in that day, you will need to stand. But whether or not you stand in that day will not be determined on what you do in that day. It will be determined on what you do before that day. Right? It's not what you do on that day that will determine whether you stand or fall. It's what you do before that day. And what you're supposed to do before that day is that you're supposed to take up the whole armor of God. There is an evil day. By the time we explain what this evil day is, as we look at the subsequent verses, you will see that you and I have faced evil days several times. It's just that when we read evil day, we have very apocalyptic pictures about it, or perhaps even very violent pictures of, oh, an accident or something terrible, which it could be, right? But the evil day is the day that Satan has concocted his minions. And in that day, it is what you have done up to that day that will determine whether you'll be able to stand or not. The Bible says that if you faint in the day of adversity, it's a proof that your, that your strength is small. It's not talking about mourning, right? There are times when things happen and you mourn. That doesn't mean that you fainted. Right? But the day of adversity, you need to stand. You know, Jesus said to Peter that Satan has desired you. He has, he, has, he has come to court, the court of heaven, and he has pressed for him to be granted a little, a little bit of access into your psyche, into your mind. He wants to sift you as wheat. And it's important to see that Jesus couldn't stop the attack, as it were. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you are strengthened, strengthen your brethren. So you see that the reason Satan came for Peter was because he had calculated and he had seen the infinite value of Peter to the work of God, which is what we said earlier, right? That spiritual warfare is always based on the fact that there is value. So that when you look upon your life and you see warfare, just know that it's an indication to you of the infinite value that God and even Satan himself places on your existence. But Satan desired him to save him as with. And he did not prefer, prepare sufficiently before the evil day. But when the evil day came, he fell. But thank God for the mercy of God. Now, to understand what this evil day is, it's important for us to do some kind of re uh, reverse study, right, of the things that Paul is going to say. Because now he's showing us different parts of the armor. And the different parts of the armor are supposed to help you stand. So each part of the armor is an antidote to a trick of Satan. Right? It's an antidote to a while of the enemy. And it also gives us an indication of what an evil day could look like. So he begins the list in verse 14 by saying, having gathered your waste with truth. You know our principle, right? That when you come to a list in scripture, often the first item on the list is the door that opens all. If you miss the first one, you're likely to miss all. He's saying that truth is the thing that holds everything else together. You need to, before the evil day comes, 
You need to bathe yourself with truth. You need to wash yourself with truth. You need to sanctify yourself with truth. There are many ways of thinking that you acquired before, excuse me, before you came to Christ, before you were born again, that if you continue thinking and operating like that, an evil day will come and you're going to find that you were wrong. So keep bathing yourself with truth. Don't tolerate low self-esteem, for example. Don't tolerate the, the wrong identity because a day will come when it will be too expensive a luxury for you to have, too heavy a weight for you to have on the track. Right? But bait yourself in truth. Jesus told us what truth is. He said in John 17, as he prayed for his disciples, sanctify them by your truth. For your word, O oh God, is truth. Truth is the testimony of the spirit of truth. It's the testimony of God about an issue. Truth is not a statement of fact. Truth is the testimony of Jesus. It's the testimony of God. What does God say about this matter? Right. Ensure that your waste is gathered with truth because the first way that the deceiver will come for you is with lies, with deceit. He will present opportunities to you that, that look very appealing on the outside. The day that you receive that opportunity is an evil day. Because if truth has not been formed in your spirit, you're going to make the wrong choice. And that wrong choice could lead you down a road that you regret taking. So the evil day does not need to come with machetes and swords and blackness. The evil day can come in the form of an opportunity that it is your experience with God that will make you turn your back on what looks like a good opportunity. Because Satan's first instrument is deception. He will try to deceive you. He will try to paint what is, what is bad as good. In fact, when he came to Jesus to tempt him, he offered Jesus everything that Jesus was supposed to get free of charge. He offered him his own thing. I don't know if Satan has come to you like that. Maybe you're about to get married and he begins to convince you that you don't need to wait for that, for that marriage date for you to explore your spouse. He's offering you what is your own thing. A, a day will come when it is the amount of truth that you have cooked up, that you have washed yourself with, that will enable you to withstand the enemy. You see, a lot of times when we are quite aggressive against false teachers and false pastors and people want us to be a bit more relativist about the truth, it's not so much about what they are saying in the moment. It's about the fact that what false teaching is doing is that it's weakening your armor so that in the evil day, there will be no defense left, right? And so he says, your waste needs to be gathered. It is the belt of truth that holds everything together. Of course, the imagery that Paul has here is the imagery of a Roman soldier. So keep that imagery in your mind. And as Paul is writing this letter, he's tied to one Roman soldier. So he has the imagery very clear in his eyes. It holds the breastplate together. It holds the sword together. It holds everything together. And with your weights, get it with the, with the with truth. The next thing is the, bless, the breastplate of righteousness. So the breastplate of righteousness is the part of the armor that protects your neck all the way down to your chest and your back, right? And it's a breastplate indicating that it, there are two sides to it, right? 
There is the righteousness that is by faith in Christ Jesus. There is the righteousness that is a fruit of obedience, right? You know, um, there is righteous being, which is your nature that God gave to you, the credits that God gave to you, and there's righteous living. Friends, it matters how a believer lives, and one of the reasons, of many reasons, many good reasons, is that there's an evil day to come. So that a way you know the evil day is the day that Satan is, is pressing you hard to violate the standards of God. He's pressing in on you. He's, he has arranged temptation in such a way that is irresistible. You don't need somebody to blow a whistle and say, fight. You know that <laughs> this is an evil day. And if you're like Joseph, you'll run and forget your coat because it's an evil day. God will have us put on the breastplate of righteousness that we will make a commitment to the righteous judgment of God that in our space, the will of God, the kingdom of God will find full expression. Jesus said to us that seek first the kingdom of God. I know you have so many prayer points, but if you can focus on his kingdom and his righteousness, everything else will follow. Just think about that for a moment. His kingdom, his righteousness, everything else will follow. How much do we really believe that? How much do we practice it? Right? That if I live a life that is dedicated, and if I focus my prayers on the kingdom that God undertakes to fight my own battles, he undertakes to stand in for me in the places where I cannot stand in for myself. So the evil day, it's not only the day that Satan comes with lies. <laughs> it's also the day that he comes with iniquity. And it's time to flee. And that's why he says that your feet must be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. There is a stage in your life that it is your testimony of the gospel that, that sustains your faith. You know, many times Christians wonder why it's as though the fire of their faith went down. No, it wasn't like it was when they started because we don't realize that the journey was supposed to be a progression. God's hope is that we're going to find new levels of satisfaction because as human beings who were created with a deep hunger for God, there's no level of satisfaction that will be enough for you. You're still going to be hungry for him tomorrow. And it means that the more he leads you into greater measures, greater assignments, greater levels of obedience, the more satisfaction you receive. So a time comes in your work with God that unless you make it a deliberate habit to put the word of God, the gospel of Christ on your, on your lips, right? To be ready to encourage another person, to be able to be ready to strengthen another person, to be ready to, to, to bring the message of hope to another person, to be ready to pray for another person, God has arranged many seasons of deliverance in your ability to stretch beyond self and to do the work of the kingdom. Right? And it is a weapon. <laughs> it's a defense mechanism because it strengthens your conviction when you have to share your faith. And it's, and it's a prayer, it's the prayer of my heart that each of us in this Bible study group will become bold proclaimers of our faith. Right? That our conviction will be so sure because we are people that share our faith and we see the results of that. And then it says above all, taking the shield of faith, 
with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So now this is the aspect of warfare that we're more familiar with, which is fiery darts, that's arrows that have been dipped into a flammable substance and fired. So this is like physical, direct confrontation from Satan. Such a day comes, friends. <laughs> Such a day comes. And when that day comes, it is how much faith you have built up in your heart that will determine if you survive that day. And the way faith works is that it, it works by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how much, how much fellowship of the believers where you hear the word of God have you exposed yourself to? Something that you heard casually by the roadside is going to rise in you in that evil day. And it's going to be a defense against the fiery darts of the wicked one. And, um, and then it says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation refers to a renewed mind. It is necessary that each of us always returns to the cross, always returns to the record of the love of God. I don't know how you do it, if you do it with worship music that reminds you of the sacrifice, the love, the forgiveness that is in Christ. You're, you are going to need it when your mind comes under attack. You're going to need it. So you need to refresh yourself. You need to become grounded in the gospel and grounded and grounded and grounded again and again in it. Right? And then the sword of the spirit is the word of God. The Roman soldier had a sword that could pierce the physical body and bring out blood. And Paul was saying, you have something sharper than that. It can pierce and divide soul and spirit. It can prick the heart. It can, it can, it can penetrate into areas that nothing else could penetrate into. It is that sharp. The word of God is offensive. The word of God in your mouth can cut down sickness. Just in case there are boils on your body, it's possible that you can speak the word of God over them and the word of God cuts them down. It's an offensive weapon. The word here is the word rema. The word that God puts on your lips for a situation. It's not supposed to stay in your lips. You're supposed to speak it out. So this is the armory. And I know that that was quite a lot. Um, but what do you think about this armory? Do you see any thread that runs through these armors. What is the striking thing to you around this? Because I, I don't know about you. I struggle to remember lists and I struggle to work with lists. Maybe it's just me who's not um, very um, phlegmatic or something like this. But I like to find the central thing. I like to find the thread that runs through. So what do you find in this armor? as a thread that runs through. Okay, Nancy said, most of the weapons are weapons of defense. Okay, and what does that mean to you? Let's, let's go over them again. He says, put on the belt of truth, right? Have you heard Christ say before that I am the way, the truth, and the life? And he referred to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. So when he says, have your, wet, your waist girded with truth, he's saying, have your waist girded with Christ, right? And then he says, 
put on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, have you heard Paul's right before that Christ is our righteousness? And he is our righteousness. It is his righteousness that God imputes to us. So this also means put on Christ. It says, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Have you um, heard Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ is our peace? Right? And he, Jesus in John chapter 16 said to his disciples before he left, my peace I give you. So your feet should be shod with Christ. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Hmm. Have you read the scripture before where Paul says that even when we are faithless, that he is faithful? Or have you read Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I who lives, but the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It means that my faith is, is a supernatural injection from the Son of God. It is, it is my fellowship with the Son of God that imparts faith. Faith is not a name it and claim it affair for me. It's not a fake it until I make it affair. It is it's an organic spiritual injection from the Son of God because of my fellowship with him. It says the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So verse 16 also means put on Christ. Because you know that Christ is our salvation. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The Bible says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So Paul is saying to you, don't be afraid of the warfare. Just put on Christ. Put on Christ. That's all you need to do. I know that there's so much opposition around you. It's as if, you know, the heavens will fall. It's as if the economy will collapse, but just put on Christ. He said something like this when he was concluding the book of Romans. I don't know if it's Romans 13. Um, yeah, Romans 13, verse 11, when he says to put on Christ. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is fast spent and the days at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. It's as though the works of darkness is a kind of garment. I want you to put it off and put on the armor of light. <laughs> and let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. So just in case you cannot remember this list that Paul gave you, remember to put on Christ. And that naturally leads us to the question of how do you put on Christ, right? And that's what Paul concludes with when he begins with verse 18. So can you read for us, Stephanie, from 18 to 24? Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly mm. to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly 
as I ought to speak. Mm -hmm. But that you also may know my affairs and know and how I am doing, teach us a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace yeah. be with all. Okay. Grace be Thank with you. all those. Okay. Thank you. Grace be with all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. What a way to conclude the book. It says you don't need to be afraid of the war. You just need to put on Christ. And how do you, I don't know if you can feel the presence of God hovering around his word. How do you put on Christ? He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. So this prayer is not happening necessarily in your mouth. Now, it's necessary when you read scriptures like pray without season to understand that the Bible is not telling you to be moving your mouth 24 hours because it's not possible. If you've tried to do it before, you end up so tired and exhausted after such an exercise that you might even fall into sin because there's no physical strength left in you to resist temptation. Right? So it's not telling you that your mouth needs to be moving, but it's telling you that your, that your life, your posture of life needs to be such that you can always be praying. You can always be watching. So just in case somebody's inviting you to a place and you're not sure if to go, ask yourself, can I still be praying if I wanted to in this place I've been invited to come to? You know, live the kind of life that you can always be praying. This is praying always, always. Because the thing with Satan and the fact that he's an invisible enemy means that he can spring up surprises. If you have been a Christian long enough, you know, you don't even need to be a Christian. Like, how many people truly predicted that COVID was coming? Right? How many people truly predicted that Russia was going to invade Ukraine and throw the security structure of Europe into um, an uncertain situation? So in a sense, you don't necessarily need to be able to anticipate the devil every time, even though it's important that you can anticipate. If God shows you that you had a dream and somebody took 20 euros from your pocket and left, <laughs> When you wake up, the name of that kind of thing is the thief. Address the thief because that's when you have seen it. So that nothing is stolen from you. But in case you don't see anything, the, the way to put on Christ is praying always. And it says with all prayer. You know, it's a shame that sometimes the only prayer that some of us pray is a prayer of petition. I want this. I want that. But the way of warfare is all prayer. There are seasons of your life when God will not allow you to pray your own prayers. And he will just ask you to intercede, intercede for Nigeria, intercede for Nigeria's children, Nigeria's educational system, Nigeria's economy, Nigeria's elections, intercede for X, intercede for Y. And you're like, I have my own things. You don't know that that intercession is part of the warfare for your own life. With all prayer, there is the prayer of thanksgiving, just in case you have finished the prayer point and you don't even feel like praying. You can convert it to thanks, just be singing songs to him. Because the person you are dealing with can be unpredictable. So you too need to have the element of unpredictability about yourself. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Don't only pray, but be watchful. 
right? Take notice of your own life. Be watchful. Watchful is not praying. It's, there are two different things. A, watch, a watchman is not necessarily somebody who's praying, even though a watchman, because of the things he sees, needs to pray. You need to watch over your own life. You need to watch over your own family. You need to watch over your territory and ask the Lord, what is he doing? What is he saying? Right? Being watchful to this end. And you need to persevere with all perseverance. And your praying needs to be for all saints. Friends, if you are praying for only yourself, it's impossible for you to be praying always. I've tried it and I can tell you it's not possible. And if you have tried it, you've probably discovered the same, that you, you quickly run out of your prayer points. But if you're praying for all the saints, there's no limit to how long you can continue that prayer. Right? And what we're seeing here is that Paul is saying that I want you to also pray for me so that my words will count, so that my words will count, so that my chains will count, so that, so that my ministry will count, so that everything I'm going through will not be for nothing. Because here he tells us that he's in chains right now as he's writing to them. But that I want to be able to speak boldly. It means that it is true prayer that our words become effective carriers of the presence of God, carriers of the spirit of God. Carriers of the power of God, true prayer, true prayer, and he and from verse twenty one to twenty four he ends with greetings from the community of believers that served to strengthen him, indicating to us, you know, inadvertently that you are going to need a community around you. What I'm describing to you is not something that is going to happen to you. What I'm describing to you is your default state. Right there is. There is warfare around your life. In case you have been tempted before, <laughs> that temptation is proof that there's warfare. What, what did you do with that temptation? Right? Are you maximizing the resources that God puts in your hands, the time? Or are you finding out that the resources are going to waste? The time is, is passing without any fruits coming to the glory of God. That's an indication of the fact that there's warfare. But you can put on Christ. You can put on the whole armor of God. You can put on Christ. And the prayer point for us tonight is that our lives will count. If, if Satan could not stop you from being born into the kingdom, the Bible says that you were not born of corruptible seed. You were not born of the will of man. Man was not consulted when God decided to include you in his kingdom. But you were born of God. If he could not prevent that sovereign activity, I can assure you that he cannot prevent your rising. He cannot prevent the fulfilling of your destiny on this earth. The worst Satan can do to a man is to kill him. <laughs> and Jesus said, I don't need you to be afraid of the person that can kill the body and cannot touch the soul. But I want to show you who you're supposed to fear. You're supposed to fear the one that can not only kill the body, but is able to destroy the soul in hell. So even death is not a threat for a believer. Because death itself is not the end. And when Satan sees a believer that has completely lost the fear of death, he turns back. He turns back. This is where we're going to stop tonight um, in our study of, of this book of Ephesians. I hope it has been a blessing to you as much as it has been 